Look inside your portfolio if you dare. Here's a bear. There's a bear. Bears are roaming everywhere. Losses upon losses. Investors getting cautious. Volatility's got us nauseous. Can we just hit the pause button? Take a timeout. A moment to figure it all out. Face ripping market routes. Making us think twice about putting money back to work when everything's on fire. We want to be bold. We want to aspire to that age-old rule. Buffett says, buy when there's fear. It's so hard to heed when the bears are near. What started as a correction has turned into an inflection. A point in time, a change of course. There's no remorse. We got to reset, retool, and re- dress we gotta steam on with the investopedia express The pain trade continues as global equity markets faced another steep week of selling, ending one of the worst months for stocks in history. The growth-heavy Nasdaq fell 13% last month, its worst monthly performance since October of 2008. Those were dire days, and the Dow lost 4.9%. The S&P 500 has booked its worst start to the year since 1939. I said 1939. It fell 13.3%. April was particularly brutal, down 4.9%, its worst April since at least 2002. Yields on the 10-year U.S. Treasury hit 2.9% on Friday, and around the world, bond prices are getting slapped. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Popular stocks were not so popular as shares of Amazon suffered their worst weekly loss since 2014 as the giant posted its first sales decline in years. Apple shares were also bruised as the iPhone maker said COVID-related supply issues cost the company $8 billion in sales last quarter. Shares of Tesla also swerved out of their lane after Elon Musk disclosed $8.2 billion worth of stock sales to help fund his purchase of Twitter. Anyone else wondering if that's such a good idea right about now? On the economic front, the PCE or personal expenditures index showed U.S. inflation rising by 5.2% in March year over year. That's the Fed's preferred measure of inflation since it strips out food and energy costs, but that's where the costs are the steepest. Consumer spending did increase by 1.1% in March, but how long can we keep up the spending? What's working? Commodities are working. They love inflationary environments. Mining stocks, oil stocks, all raw materials and things we dig up out of the earth. It's a tough time to be a green investor when black gold is still in style. I got good news and bad news for you. Good news first, May is typically a strong month for the U.S. stock market. The bad news, so is April, or at least it used to be. The real bad news, May begins the worst six-month period for the year for the U.S. stock market with declines of 1.8% on average. I'll take a 1.8% drop from here if that's all there is, but I don't think that's in the cards. Brace yourselves for the sell in May and go away headlines you're about to see this week. And while that rule used to apply to the stock market because traders would take off for the summer vacation at the end of May, they don't really do that anymore. But this May may very well break the back of the bulls. Rate hikes are coming. Growth is slowing and inflation is spreading like poison ivy. Somebody get the Caladrill stat. For all you chart lovers out there, keep an eye on the 4,000 level for the S&P 500. According to B of A's technical analysis team, if it drops below that level, the wheels may come off completely. Now, passengers, we've been through some slippery rails before, but nothing that's lasted more than a few months, at least while we've been together. Still, we got this. If you're a long-term investor with some balance in your portfolio or even a barbell strategy to keep you on your feet around these tracks, remember this. The S&P 500 has returned 9.2%, including dividends, every year on average for the last 80 years. Stocks generally move higher over the long term. The longer the term, the better the returns. That sounds sweet, I know, but it's hard to swallow in the face of all the selling. I know that. I'm feeling it too. Also, the best days in the stock market come during the worst periods for stocks. That's why we stick around and not try to time the market. We have no idea when those days are going to come. We just want to be here when they do. 
And lastly, the more stocks decline, the cheaper they become relative to their earnings. Earnings are slowing, no doubt about it, but stocks are declining even more right now relative to their earnings. According to our pal Ryan Dietrich at LPL Financial, buying stocks at a 19 PE ratio today where the S&P 500 is right now positions us better for long-term returns as much as 5 to 6% annually than when we buy stocks when the S&P 500 was 24 like it was at the start of the year. PE ratios have come down. Weather the storm, make sure you're not too heavy in one sector or another, dollar cost average your way in every month if you can, and I'll see you on the other side of this tunnel. We got this. Let's get set up for a busy week ahead, and more and more earnings are coming our way, and it's been a treacherous season to bring bad news to the market. Among the widely held companies reporting results this week include Lowe's, Pfizer, Chipmaker AMD, Airbnb, Starbucks, Moderna, Royal Dutch Shell, and Uber. We're also going to get monthly sales reports from the automakers. If Apple's having supply chain issues, you better believe they are too. And if you're not profitable or even barely generating revenue right now like so many electric vehicle makers, including Rivian, Lucid, Fisker, and Lordstown, or Nikola, look out below. Every one of those shares has been driven off the road deep into bear market territory. Shares of Rivian alone are down more than 70% this year. Are you ready for a rate hike? You better be, because we're going to get one on Wednesday when the FOMC concludes its two-day meeting on monetary policy. The Fed is expected to raise its benchmark federal funds rate by 50 basis points to a range of between 75 and 100 basis points following that 25 basis point increase last March. The federal funds rate is now projected to end the year in a range of between 2 and 2.25%, which is half a percent higher than previously anticipated. Rates are rising. In addition, the Fed is expected to begin winding down its record $9 trillion balance sheet as early as next month. U.S. Treasury bonds for sale, but will the buyers stick around? And the jobs market is back in focus with three key reports to keep an eye on this week. On Tuesday, the Bureau of Labor Statistics is set to release its monthly job openings and labor turnover survey. That's the JOLTS report. That shows the total number of hires, quits, separations, and job openings for the month of March. Payroll provider ADP will release its national employment report for April on Wednesday, tracking private sector job growth. But keep an eye on Friday as the BLS releases its April non-farms payroll report, aka the jobs report. Estimates are calling for a gain of around 395,000 jobs following a gain of 431,000 last March. The U.S. labor market remains historically tight with unemployment currently at 3.6% and job openings at a record 11.3 million. The Express has rolled its way into Omaha, Nebraska for the Berkshire Hathaway annual shareholders meeting. They used to call this Woodstock for capitalists. Now it's just the Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger show. There are 40,000 shareholders coming in this weekend to hear pearls of wisdom from the nonagenarians. Buffett is 91 and Munger is 98 years young. They are still going strong. Although I don't expect to see Warren playing the ukulele with the Fruit of the Loom gang or getting on a Harley Davidson motorcycle insured by Geico, of course, like he used to. But inside the CHI Center, a huge convention center in downtown Omaha, tens of thousands of shareholders are flooding in for the Q&A with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger that will last all day on Saturday. But they are also here to shop, and shop a lot. Berkshire Hathaway has over 60 subsidiaries, many of them household names like Dairy Queen, Burlington Northern Santa Fe, the Mighty Railroad Company, NetJets, Geico, Fruit of the Loom Underwear, Justin Boots, Seas Candies, Duracell, Benjamin Moore, Brooks, the Running Shoe Company, Acme Brick, and more. They are all here, and they are all selling merchandise. At a discount, of course, for shareholders, but sales are booming. Ever the capitalist, Buffett knows his shareholders like to shop, especially when he is attached to the products. 
But they're also here to pay homage to the Oracle of Omaha and Charlie Munger and listen to pearls of wisdom from the two legends at Saturday's shareholder meeting. Buffett and Munger took questions from shareholders for seven hours on Saturday, breaking only once for a 45-minute lunch. They sat next to each other at a table inside the CHI arena, which seats more than 18,000 people. They drank Cokes, they nibbled on seized candies, and they took one question after the other. You can hear most of that Q&A on CNBC.com, which had the streaming rights to the conference this year. We'll link to it in the show notes. I used to be a regular at the shareholder meeting in my past lives, working with CNN and Bloomberg. Back in the day, Buffett would do a lap around the convention center, heavily guarded, of course, but he would talk to the press, take pictures with shareholders, eat a creamsicle from Dairy Queen, goof around with Geico's gecko, and ham it up. He's too old for that now, and there's too much COVID. So while I didn't get the FaceTime with Buffett, I did catch up with many shareholders from all over the world. They worship Buffett, and for good reason. Long-term shareholders have done very well investing in Berkshire Hathaway. Back in 1965, Buffett, through his investment partnership, famously took over management and control of Berkshire Hathaway, Inc., a then large but struggling New England textile maker. His investment partnership had accumulated about 49% of the shares starting in 1962, culminating with heavy purchases in early 1965. He became chairman and CEO of the company in 1970, and it was in tough financial shape. But since 1970, Buffett and Charlie Munger diversified the company across industries, including railroads, insurance, consumer goods, energy, mobile homes, candy, furniture, Western wear, books, mortgages, financial services, and ice cream, among others. And since 1970... Berkshire shares have risen more than 33,000%. The Class A shares have never split and are priced today around $492,000 apiece. The stock has delivered a 20% average annual return compared to just 10% for the S&P 500. Today, there are around 3 million shareholders of record, and many families have become multimillionaires through their ownership. At least seven people, not including Warren and Charlie, have become billionaires through Berkshire Hathaway. Hero worship, You betcha. I caught up with several shareholders roaming around the convention center, buying everything from new cowboy boots to bracelets at Borsheim's and more. Tell me your name and where you're from. Uh, Bruce. I'm from, uh, well, Nebraska, south of Lincoln. How long have you been a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder? Uh, Late 80s. I don't remember the exact year, but yep. How's it been being a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder? Oh, great. Yep. I think I bought, it was an A share for, it was 18,000 something. Good. I just bought one. Should have bought several. Yeah. <laughs> you and me both. Tell me where you're from. I'm from Brazil. What's your name? Uh, Mozart. How long have you been a shareholder, Mozart? Uh, probably three years now, I think. Yeah. Has that been good for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been doing great. Yeah. Why did you invest in Berkshire Hathaway? Well, I actually work in investments. I'm a portfolio manager in a wealth management company. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you know who Warren Buffett is and Berkshire and all of that. And uh, yeah, I literally just bought the shares to be part of the meeting and see what it's all about and see Warren. So here I am. What's your impressions of the shareholder meeting so far? It's a big shopping festival, huh? Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I mean, yeah, really, I really didn't know what to expect, but this is absolutely like really going over the expectations that I had. And it's just a big party. Everyone's very friendly and having fun. So yeah, it's been great. Obrigado. Tell me your name. My name is Josef. And where are you from, Josef? Also from Brazil. And what brings you to the Omaha, Nebraska? Well, the convention for sure, and uh, came with my friend. What do you guys know about what's what's Warren Buffett and Charlie's reputation down in Brazil? Oh, he's well known, and um, I think that's pretty much it. There's a lot of investors that invest here. We actually met a lot of Brazilians here already, so it's been very interesting to see how how many people came here. We're on the caparinhas. We need some. I don't know. Super <laughs> gelada, né? Thank you. First, tell us your name. 
Carl Hughes. Carl, where are you from? Marion, Ohio. What brings you to the shareholder meeting? You've been a shareholder for a long time? Yes, a long time shareholder. How many times have you come to the shareholder meeting? Second visit, though. How has it been being a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder over the years? I imagine pretty good, right? It's been really good. And how, if you had any questions for Charlie or Warren, what would you ask them if you had the opportunity? I'd just keep doing a great job, you know. They're performing well, they have a good business model, and just stay focused. Tell me your name and where you're from. I'm Ludwig, I'm from Munich in Germany. And how long have you been a shareholder? Uh, since 2015. I've been investing, yeah. You've been a Berkshire Hathaway shareholder since 2015? Uh, no, that, that not. I've, uh, I've missed the boat uh, and just bought it in 2018. And what's it like being a shareholder, especially living in Germany? You follow along pretty closely? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working in the, in the equity research uh, uh, department, and so I'm, I'm always engaged with stocks and investing, and uh, Berkshire Hathaway is, of course, the, the leader in the, in the space, and yeah, that's so we're always following in it. What's Warren and Charlie's reputation like over in Germany? Yeah, it's, pre it's pretty good, especially in the investment circles. Everybody is uh, yeah, looking up to them and uh, learning from them all the time. What do you think of the shareholder meeting so far? Is this your first one? Yeah, it's the first one, and we actually just arrived one hour ago. So, But we're really impressed by all the different companies, the diversified holdings, and really looking forward to tomorrow. You doing a little shopping while you're here? Yeah, we're, we're just uh, getting around and see what's, uh, what's a good product. <laughs> that. I'd like to see you in some Justin cowboy boots before the end of the weekend to take back to Germany. <laughs> yeah, well, it would be very nice. <laughs> Tell me your name and where you're from. Uh, Chris Freed from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And how long have you been a Berkshire shareholder? 2001. My first uh, stock I purchased when I was a student at the University of Pennsylvania was um, Berkshire, Class B shares. And remember the price when you bought them? 1500 I believe. That was before the, uh, the split because of the BNFS uh, railroad uh, uh, acquisition. Still a pretty good return for the baby bees over those years, right? Absolutely. Been buying ever since. Uh, is this your first shareholder meeting? This is my eighth. So I think it's one I've been to since uh, 2019. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been here too. What are your impressions? Really hasn't changed, but still a shopping fest, and a lot of people so excited to see Warren and Charlie and the crew here. Absolutely. Uh, it, it looks like it was back in 2019, which is great. The last two years have been just you know we've been locked at home, just waiting. So it's great to see people moving about again. Um, and, you know, Charlie and Warren, there's only a few more opportunities we get to see and interact with them. So it's just great to be back in Omaha. If you could ask them any question, any one question, what would it be? Conversion. Uh, share buybacks. Uh, as the share buybacks and the conversions from A to B continue, uh, economic ownership is shifting to Class B shareholders. But voting power is concentration is actually increase on the A shares and I'm growing concerned it's not an issue as long as Warren and Charlie around but they're when they're not here anymore there could be an issue with institutions having too much power over the future of Berkshire at that point sounds like you've been following it pretty closely we really appreciate your time no problem thank you my name is Jorge I'm from Minneapolis Minnesota how long have you been a Berkshire shareholder I've been a Berkshire shareholder since 2018. Uh, is this your first annual meeting? This is my first annual meeting, and like everybody else, I, I'm enjoying everything. I didn't, I didn't know if I really ever wanted to go because I know that it's free, but to me it's a rite of passage. Warren's 91. I knew that if I didn't go, I would, I would regret it 100%, and so I, I, I wanted to go last year. I wanted to go the year before that with the pandemic. It was canceled two years in a row, and so I'm finally here, and I'm happy to be here. 
How are you satisfied with uh, being a shareholder? Are you happy with the return? Very, very happy with the returns. Um, love reading his annual letter that comes in the mail every every year, and I, and I get to it's nice and, and pretty, and, and I get to read it like, and I feel like a partner with the with the way that he treats us and things like that. And so very very happy with the way, very happy with being a shareholder. And if you could ask Warren or Charlie any question uh, that's on your mind this weekend, what would it be? Hmm, man, I'm gonna have to think about that one for a second. I've listened to a lot of his shareholders meetings, so I feel like he's been asked every single question uh, one way or the other. I mean, I guess I'd go with the the generic one, but one that I hope that he gets more specific. He's not always as detailed as uh, what keeps him up at night. Like what what in particular keeps him up at night? I know he kept a lot of money for the pandemic and he didn't spend money because he was worried about potential downfall. And I would just be curious uh, what what keeps him up at night and when he thinks about his painting of Berkshire Hathaway in the future and he thinks about what how what it's going to be in the future, what is he most worried about when he thinks about Berkshire Hathaway 20, 30, 40 years from now that could potentially cut into the profits that he has now? First of all, just tell us your name and where are you from? Arlene Wimmer, Buffalo Girl, Illinois, outside of Chicago. How long have you been a shareholder? At least 20 years, if not more. I used to watch Warren play baseball in the old stadium. He used to throw out the first pitch at the uh, at the stadium. Right. Don't think we're going to be seeing him do that this year. He's 91, but I think he's still got something on his fastball. What's the thing you like most about coming to these meetings? Oh, the camaraderie. Oh, my gosh. It's so much fun. And you, you just feel like he cares about the stock. And a lot of these people, they own the s- different stocks, but they just own them. You know, this is like a family. And I imagine owning the stock for so long has been pretty good for you, right? It has been pretty good for me. I don't, anytime somebody tells me to sell, I always say no because he's my, he's my safety. What are your concerns as a shareholder as you watch this company? It's been going strong for so long. What are you worried about? I don't worry about Warren Buffett. I sincerely don't worry about it. I worry if they mess with the way he manages money. That I worry about. But right now, I, th- I still think he has it in him to manage well. Well, there is a succession plan in place, but there's also some outcry for maybe him to split that chairman and CEO role. You yeah, you in favor? I'm not in agree with that at all. At all. Why not? I just think you can only have one boss. You start, ma- you start adding a boss, adding a boss, adding a boss. It's not going to work. Great. So what do you want to hear from him tomorrow? I want to hear that he's not retiring. <laughs> really, I do. I think he's doing a great job, and I think he's careful with the money, and that's what's important to me. You know, it's like buying a fancy house and you want it to stay, you know? <laughs> great point. Thank you so much for your time. I enjoyed talking to you and your subscribers. You get the point. Shareholders worship Buffett and Munger. They've made them money, but more importantly, they feel like partners, owners of the business. If you've ever read any of Buffett's letters to shareholders, and you should, because they are works of art, he's talking to them like partners. As Buffett said this weekend, when he writes those letters in his mind, he's writing to his two sisters. They were among his first investors, so he wanted to make sure he was clear and that they were in this together. But what about running a company owned by Berkshire Hathaway? That's got to be a lot of pressure, right? It is. But Buffett and Munger are ultra serious about letting great leaders lead. You rarely see a case where Berkshire buys a company, fires the CEO, and recruits some hotshot to put in the corner office. That's antithetical to the way they approach their empire. The philosophy is simple. 
Buy great businesses that are undervalued, run by smart people with large addressable markets and moats around them. They want companies that are already well-run with defensible market positions. Corporate raiders, activist investors, private equity sharks, they are not. They are long-term buy-and-hold investors, period. I caught up with the CEO of Dairy Queen to find out what it's really like running a Berkshire Hathaway subsidiary. And full disclosure, I had a couple of dilly bars while I waited for him. Troy Bader, I'm president and CEO of International Dairy Queen. And you've been with DQ Dairy Queen for many years. You were the COO up until about 2017, am I right? Yep, I've been with the company since 2001 and took over this role in January of 18. So what is it like being a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway? They're notoriously hands-off because they trust great managers, but is that as true as it sounds from the inside out? Yeah, it really is. And we couldn't, we were, Dairy Queen prior to Berkshire's uh, purchase was publicly traded. And Berkshire's purchase was really, really important to the Dairy Queen system because it really allowed Dairy Queen to take a long view. It wasn't quarter to quarter from that point forward. And it really allowed us to reinvest much more heavily and much more deeply into the system and into our franchisees. And that has really spurred a lot of growth, both from a unit level, but also from an expansion on an international basis as well as domestically. So it is wonderful because they they do give us latitude, but there's also, you, you know what you need to do. Integrity is important. Brand is important. Your consumer is important. And if you live by those values and you follow those values, usually good things are going to flow from it. But I would also say, some people say, oh, they're hands-off. They're not there to support you. That's never an issue. We always have the support whenever we need it. And we just couldn't be more fortunate than to be owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, well, you're in good company. So many companies, over 60 companies, subsidiaries, are owned by Berkshire Hathaway. So many of them here in Omaha for the shareholder meeting. What time? What type of reporting do they expect from you? I know you don't have to report to shareholders on a quarterly basis, but for the operating company, for Berkshire Hathaway, do they want to hear from you on the quarterly, on the monthly? How frequently? We have to report quarterly because obviously everything's going to roll up to Berkshire's reporting. Uh, so we have detailed reporting every quarter, but we also provide them with information on a monthly basis. How are we performing on a monthly basis? Uh, looking at the numbers, and then obviously as things uh, as we want new initiatives, new investments, uh, challenging things come up in the business, ongoing communication with uh, with Greg Abel. So now that you you report frequently, what are the key operating metrics? Obviously, we know your industry is into same store sales, you're into uh, spend per customer, but what are the key operational metrics for Dairy Queen that are important to you as CEO and are important to them as the as the holding company? Yeah, a lot of times people will say, "Oh, it's you know, it's our revenue and it's our bottom line." Actually, for us, it starts with our franchisees. We want to know how our franchisees are doing from a sales and profit perspective. We have we own two corporate stores. Every one of our other stores is franchised. So the heart and soul and success of our business is the success of our franchisees. So we continue to look at our franchisees from a perspective of not only same store sales, but total AUV. If we have a new store, how are we performing in terms of the sales, but also what's happening with labor, what's happening with cost of goods, what's happening with some of those other controllable costs, because at the end of the day, that manageable profit and ultimately the bottom line is what's important. When our franchisees make money, when their sales grow, all ships rise because we are generally paid as a percentage of their sales, obviously, traditional franchise model. So if we focus, as we do, on their success, we will be successful. So how's the consumer doing right now in the U.S.? They've been holding up, but there seems to be some sketchiness going on. I know you guys are coming off of two really strong years, but how is it feeling right now? What are your franchisees telling you? Yeah, we've had, we did have two very, very strong years. Record sales in 2021 of more than $5.5 billion on a worldwide basis. And right now, though, it's certainly
certainly flattening out if you think about just what's happening in, in the world, right? Wages may still be high, but now we're dealing with something called inflation and some declining consumer confidence. So what we're really trying to balance is with inflation, prices have to go up. But we also know that our consumer today is spending more on fuel. They're spending more on housing. They're spending more on food and many other things. So that means their discretionary dollars available for away from home occasions is shrinking. And every time they go out, they're paying more. So we're trying to thread that needle between we've got to make sure that our franchisees remain reasonably profitable. And when they're setting their prices and they set their own prices, they're trying to make sure that they don't impact their transactions and the frequency that the guests can visit them, but they're doing enough to make sure that they can remain in business and that they can remain reasonably profitable. His managers love him, his shareholders love him, but it's not always creamsicles and cherry cokes at the shareholder meeting, at least outside the meeting. Every year, and this year was no different, there were protesters. Not a lot, but a few were out there on a cold, windy, and rainy day in Omaha, Nebraska. About a dozen or so members of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, part of the Teamsters Union, walked up and down 10th Street in front of the convention center entrance with protest signs whipping in the wind. I caught up with the president of the union. Dennis Pierce, national president of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainman. And what are you out here protesting? BNSF is one of the uh, bright stars of the Berkshire Hathaway portfolio. Uh, the union represented employees at BNSF have not had a contract pay raise in over almost three years. Uh, we've been at the bargaining table. Uh, they're not bargaining in good faith and the employees deserve better. They're part of what makes all these profits here. And in terms of compensation and, and fairness for your workers, what specifically are you looking for? Well, they haven't had a raise in three years. The cost of living is spiking in the 7 to 8% range, and all of this is a, a national negotiation with all the railroads. Union Pacific up the street here is part of that. Their employees haven't had a pay raise either. So we're at the table trying to get something fair for these folks that covers cost of living and gives them meaningful wage increases. What kind of response have you had from Berkshire Hathaway or BNSF and the leadership there? BNSF, uh, instead of coming to the table and actually meeting with us uh, in a fair and, and I think uh, decent manner, is misrepresenting that, that the employees have all this time off that they don't. Uh, they're not even telling the truth to the public about what's going on out there in the railroad right now. So when you see these tens of thousands of shareholders gathering to celebrate Berkshire Hathaway and shop and hear from Warren and Charlie, what is, what's your impression? Well, I, call, I told a guy yesterday this is technically a, a celebration of profit. That's what this uh, Berkshire Hathaway thing's about. And our guys are the guys who helped make a big hunk of that profit, and they got left behind. Have you had a chance to address anybody inside the shareholder meeting? Do you have a representative who's been able to ask questions? No, we didn't get things in in advance and in time to do that, uh, but we're out here making sure they know we're here. Hey, take it from us here at the Express. You better take care of your locomotive engineers and trainmen and women for that matter. Meanwhile, inside the shareholders' meeting, the questions range from softballs about how Buffett and Munger pick great businesses to beach balls about how they've been able to beat the market for so many years to some smart questions about strategy, long-term plans, and the company's equity holdings. Berkshire's the largest shareholder of Apple, Coca-Cola, HP, and a few other pretty big public companies. But no tough questions about its oil investments and climate change, succession planning, although Greg Abel, who runs Berkshire's day-to-day operations, was on the stage for part of the meeting and he took a few questions. The plan's in place. And Buffett stressed that Berkshire is built to last and will be around in 100 years. The crowd really liked that. And no questions about some of the shareholder proposals, like the one backed by the California Public Employees Retirement System, CalPERS we like to call it. It wants to replace Buffett as chairman as long as he's CEO. There's a growing drumbeat for that across American companies. Remember, Arlene from Illinois, 
didn't like that idea. CalPERS has more than $450 billion in assets, including about $2.3 billion in Berkshire Class A shares. But Buffett controls a lot more of those voting shares, so that's not likely to pass. CalPERS also said it backed four other shareholder proposals that the Berkshire board opposes, including one that would require the conglomerate to provide shareholders with an annual assessment of how it manages physical and transitional climate-related risks and opportunities. But Buffett and Munger did take a few questions about what Berkshire's been up to lately, including some heavy spending. Berkshire made $41 billion of net purchases in the first quarter, including a boost to its stake in Chevron, which is now one of Berkshire's top four common stock holdings. Buffett also disclosed that the company holds an expanded 9.5% stake in Activision Blizzard stock, an arbitrage bet on the video game maker in the midst of being acquired by Microsoft. That and its $11.5 billion purchase of Insure Allegheny put a nice little dent in Berkshire's cash pile for the first time in a long time. It ended the first three months of 2022 with about $106.3 billion in cash, down from nearly $147 billion at the end of 2021. Buffett and Munger also took a few questions about Bitcoin, and they swatted them out of the air like flies. You're going to hear Buffett's response to one of those in a minute. All in, it was good to be back in Omaha at the shareholder meeting. I'm not a shareholder, but there's something special about the way that those shareholders revere Buffett and Munger. It's the way they feel like they can relate to them, like family, a family brought together through one of the biggest experiments in capitalism we've ever seen. I hope to go again next year. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony i'd like to buy the world a coke and keep it company of course i could buy the world a coke but i'm not sure my shareholders would go for that it's terminology time time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week and this week's term comes to us from heather in millbridge maine right there on naraguagas bay in the heart of wild blueberry country where you'll find jasper wyman and son the nation's leading grower packer and marketer of wild blueberries heather suggests stop loss order this week and we like that term given how trepidatious a lot of us are feeling about investing in stocks these days A stop-loss order is an order placed with a broker or online broker to buy or sell a specific stock once the stock reaches a certain price. A stop-loss is designed to limit an investor's loss on a securities position. For example, setting a stop-loss order for 10% below the price at which you bought the stock will limit your loss to 10%. Not a bad way to inch your way back into the market if you're feeling a little more losses may be blowing in. Protect your downside. We like that suggestion, Heather, and you're going to be getting a pair of our Investopedia socks for your next walk along the bay in beautiful Millbridge. We're going to let Warren Buffett take us out this week, of course. I didn't go all the way to Omaha to eat C's Pecan Chocolate Clusters, Dilly Bars, and drink Cherry Coke. I went, like everyone, to hear from the Oracle. And here he is, responding to an investor question about why he doesn't own Bitcoin and why he never will. This, of course, is courtesy of CNBC, which live-streamed the event on Saturday. If the people in this room owned all of the farmland in the United States and you offered me a 1% interest in it and you said for a 1% interest in all the farmland in the United States pay me uh, pay our group well let's see 10 trillion, one. pay us this bargain price 25 billion dollars I'll write you a check this afternoon $25 billion, now I own 1% of the farmland. If you tell me you own 1% of the apartment houses in the United States and you offer me a 1% interest, so I'll have a 1% interest in all the apartment houses in the country, and you want whatever it may be, 
Ford. And call them another $25 billion or something. I'll write you a check. You know, it's very simple. Now, if you told me you owned all of the Bitcoin in the world and you offered it to me for $25, I wouldn't take it because what would I do with it? Um, I have to sell it back to you one way or another. I mean, maybe I'd be the same people, but it isn't going to do anything. The apartments are going to produce rental and, and the farms are going to produce food. I can't argue with that, but I still own a little just to play the game. Speaking of playing, the Express is going to pull into the station and take next week off. This conductor's taking a little break, but we'll be back on the tracks the week after next. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.